code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films, one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis. And I'm Heather Artis. Welcome back, Heather. Thanks, Scott. Are you ready for our second week behind the mics with The Curse of the Black Pearl? Oh yes, I'm very excited about this week. Yeah, I don't have any real major intros for this particular minute, Minute 8, which we're about to review. However, I did want to point out, since we have talked a bit about history and facts in previous minutes, and we'll continue to do so throughout the upcoming minutes, everyone, the film is not actually set in a specific year. It's really set in a loose, floating period of time somewhere around the 1740s. Thus, there are some liberties taken in regards to historical accuracy and things. So we might point some stuff out, but... You know, we've talked a bit about, you know, what, like, ranks like Commodore and stuff and when they arrived, but there are certain things that we can't really nail down exactly or pinpoint. So mm-hmm. we'll do our best, and the movie does its best as well. So Disney did take some liberties in making that, so uh, we'll see what happens. Also, this movie was the first Walt Disney Pictures release to earn a PG-13 rating, as all the previous releases by the studio were rated G or PG. The other day we talked about the development of the film and whether it was going to be a theater or direct-to-DVD release. And apparently before all that happened, it was actually looking to be an animated movie. And if I have my facts correct, Gavin Dell designed and developed an entire animated cast for Pirates of the Caribbean. There were 190 characters, including character turnarounds, mouth charts, rough rough acting poses, and walk cycles for all these animated characters. And then he did that between 1998 and 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I imagine that Y2K happened and then, you know, Disney uh, lost all that stuff yeah. because of the computer <laughs> the computer explosions and stuff that happened right at the turn of the, the century there. <laughs> but if you're interested, you can check out his concept art on GavinDell.com. He has some of the, the stuff that he produced there. And it's pretty interesting to take a peek at it and see what some of the art was maybe going to look like for the Pirates of the Caribbean animation film that was maybe going to be planned. In the previous episode, we watched a visitor to the Swan residence accidentally break off a piece of the wall sconce in the foyer while waiting for Governor Swan and learned that Elizabeth was being prompted to attend Norrington's promotion ceremony in the hopes of sparking a courtship. In Minute 8, it is revealed that the Swan's visitor is none other than grown Will Turner. The minute begins with him hiding the broken wall sconce slash candle holder in an umbrella stand and ends with a now fully dressed Elizabeth making a grand entrance downstairs catching the attention of Will and Governor Swan. Governor Swan says she is absolutely dot dot dot. The minute ends mid-sentence. So my kind of big takeaway from this is the sword and the presentation that Will has. And so Will takes the sword and balance it, basically takes it back from Governor Swan and balances it on his finger at the point where the blade meets the guard. And Will says, perfectly balanced. The tang is nearly the full width of the blade. So do you know what the tang is? No, I'm not sure. I was kind of wondering that. Yeah, I mean, I kind of inferred what that might be, but I really had no idea. And so I did take a peek at some weaponry websites and information to get more of a better idea of what that actually is. And the tang is part of the sword that is connected to the blade. 
and located directly below the hilt. The rule of thumb for the Tang is the thicker it is, the sturdier and stronger the blade. However, the thicker it is, the slightly more weight you are adding to the blade, and you might have to be careful so that you can keep it well balanced. So is that like the handle? Yeah, it's kind of like the piece that's inside the handle, if oh, you will, okay. if you want to put that in kind of layman's terms for everybody. I kind of need layman's terms. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there you go. The piece that's inside the handle, it can be thicker. So they're basically talking about how wide it is. It's the width of the blade so that it's not some, because sometimes that they can get real skinny or oh, real okay. thin in there. So that's what they're talking about. Oh, okay. And the hilt is the place that protects the hand? Well, that would be the guard. That would be the guard, yeah. Okay. I don't know anything about swords, sorry. So it depends on... I don't either. So why are are you questioning me on this? (laughs) You you put out all these terms. I was curious. I have minimal training in in sword development. And then you're going to go ahead and quiz me on these these terms. And and then I'm going to be like, well, you know, I don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so anybody out there, you can look up the sword parts on the internet. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. <laughs> Thanks for that, Heather. No problem. Anytime. So while we're talking swords then, uh, this actually happens to be a small sword. Uh, that's what it actually is called. It's really? called a small sword. And it looked awful large for being small. In comparison to other swords, say, like if you have a broadsword, for instance, if you were to get into, say, you know, Mel Gibson's Braveheart character, these huge monstrosity swords, or like our, you know, the Gandalf Lord of the Rings sword. Now I can't even think of the name of this sword, but it's a fairly large sword. That's not something that you'd want to be wielding as a, you know, on a ship, for okay. instance. It'd be fairly difficult. So it's actually called a small sword now that Heather wants to get into this. And... It was used by both the military, where they served more as a sign of a certain rank rather than a real weapon oftentimes, but then it was also used for close combat and as a dueling weapon. And the very height of the small sword's widespread popularity was between the middle of the 17th and the late 18th century, when it was considered fashionable by aristocrats. And there was a quote in kind of this idiom of the time that no gentleman was dressed without his sword. And so that was something of the middle of the 18th century. But it was still used as a dueling weapon until the middle of the 20th century. And it had a cum- the cumbersome and kind of crude broadswords, which I was just talking about, actually displaced long, thin rapiers. And so a rapier is kind of a forefront to this particular sword, the small sword. And so you can imagine like a thin, like more of a thin blade. Mm-hmm. And the belief was that like broadswords, which were used for slashing would only wound because the way you have to, you know, you don't, you traditionally kind of slash, you've seen those kind of movies where they're sword fighting and things like that. While rapier would typically be like a thrusting motion, like you're going to step forward and thrust, almost like it's kind of fencing, if you will. Okay. But in that particular manner where you're trying to actually like pierce somebody. somebody. Yeah, poke somebody. (laughs) And so they thought, hey, maybe thrusts are going to be deadlier because you're not slashing at them. You're actually like penetrating organs right. which is not something you definitely want I, I don't want slashes or sword penetrations into my organs if you will no but uh, the metallurgy and the metalworking in the 1700s allowed for the development of both blades which could be effective for both slashing and for uh thrusting if you will and still it would be light enough for pro, pro prolonged use in battle for the average uh, person fighting and so the small sword used by norrington evolved out of the like i said the longer and heavier rapier so we're getting into sword talk here 
In Norton's sword, Norton, Norrington's sword <laughs> is a small one-handed straight blade light and roughly a meter in length sword and was a standard side weapon of the British Royal Navy officers. So it was more of an accessory rather than a weapon. Yeah, it was. I mean, for this movie, I think that we're probably going to see some sword fighting and i think it was used for they said it was used for dueling purposes and for some combat but it was typically like an ornamentation too that was that was used to signify rank as well i always wondered why in the movies you'd see men at the dances or at the gatherings with their swords on their sides yeah that's part of it even i think to the military to this day even part of some of the officers uniform have swords but i could be wrong or at least that was a practice for for a while that you know in their dress uniforms that they'll have a sword at the hilt or something like that so or at least not at the hilt but at their side yeah getting back to the movie and away from sword talk sword talk 101 by somebody who is not even a master (laughs) swordsman to be talking about this and and definitely probably got a lot of it wrong so yeah that's not good but we'll go from there we but, have gandalf sword yeah exactly <laughs> i'm trying to remember what that sword name is but i can't, I can't right remember. now but it, it's fairly heavy to be wielding about oh, so yeah. definitely you'd want something a bit smaller especially if we're talking pirate ships or being on a naval ship i wouldn't want to be swinging a broadsword around trying to hit somebody and you're hitting all this wood and and pieces of a ship getting it all hung up and then you got somebody else with a smaller sword just stabbing at you i'm gonna be opting for the smaller one yeah i've tried to wield around the sword and it's pretty heavy to be. <laughs> yeah, you're not somebody to definitely be swinging a sword around. So actually, which is interesting, talking about swinging a sword around, you would be the exact opposite of Will in this particular situation, flinging the sword around. Oh, yeah. But but I think that it still yields the same response that Governor Swan has as he flinches during that flip action that Will has because he takes the sword back, he shows that it's perfectly balanced, and then he kind of does this flip situation. And you can see that... Governor Swan even kind of flinches backward because right. he's worried that maybe this is going to hit him. And I and when I look at that, I'm not really sure if that was part of the script and I didn't look at that specifically or if he was directed to do so or if it was just because he flinched out of just instinct about to get out of the way. So they said it took like 15 takes to do that sword flip. Yeah, that's what I was remembering. So Kira Knightley was being, you know, was laughing about that, how yeah. watching Will, or if you will, Orlando Bloom do this, that it took him about 15 times to actually get it right to do that flip. And so I'm sure with that crazy sword flipping action and all the fumbles during the, the other 14 takes that it took for him to do that, is that Governor Swan standing there, or Jonathan Price, if you will, was probably starting to get a little uncomfortable. Like, you know, I may actually get stabbed in this in this movie or have to go to the medic for, for a slash of sword slash. And so that may be his real reaction, that they're just close enough to be in the camera shot and he's flipping this around and maybe he was just naturally going back, which, which okay, we'll go from there. But yeah. I, I think that's kind of how it went. And Also, the writers were talking about how Orlando Bloom signed on with the movie a day or so before filming began. And when he got the script, he had about 10 minutes or so to actually practice with the sword to get that right. So he didn't even have a lot of time to use the sword or to get a feel for it. It's like, oh, by the way, we're shooting this today. Here you go. And you got to flip this thing around. And so (laughs) he had about 10 minutes to start playing with it. I'm sure that's why it took 15 different takes to get that right. Yeah, probably haven't practiced at all. <laughs> yeah, and you're just joining the, the set, and all of a sudden you don't want to go down as being the one who impaled 
your your co-star. That wouldn't be good. Jonathan Price goes to the hospital with a sword wound, but then there's, you know, no bad publicity, they say. But I'm sure, (laughs) you know, Orlando Bloom didn't really want to go down doing that. No, probably not. But I think the other big thing here is that Governor Swan, he really comments on the how nice the sword is. And he really gives him a big kind of pat on the back for it. He says, do pass my compliments on to your master. Yes, thank you for that. Uh-huh. And so I think that when you really look at Will's face on that, he's at first like so bummed because he's so proud of this sword. And you get yeah. the feeling that he made it just by the look on his yeah. face when he says that. It really is like a letdown, like, oh, my God, he doesn't even know that I'm the one who really did this. That's the feeling I get. Yeah, me too. But then I see his face kind of get that, you know, where it's proud again because he is saying, you know, a craftsman always wants to hear that his work is appreciated. Right. So I think that does play in. But I think it shows, again, we get back to some of the stuff that we've seen historically within the first, say, eight minutes of this film, that Will is of a lower echelon than the governor, you know, Governor Swan in in high society. And so yet, even though he is a working class person, he still is not getting, say, that respect that maybe he deserves uh, with the sword making. So he's still not appreciated for what he's doing or even seen as being able to do that. Right. Found that kind of interesting, actually, because he does, you know, it is like almost a letdown. And then it's like, Oh, okay, well, I'll take the compliment, you know, even though it wasn't really meant for me, but I'll take it and kind of work around that way. Exactly. So I think that's precisely what happened is that he finally, he gets this look of, man, that's such a bummer that I'm not just going to come out and say, well, I did this, that the, you know, goes to a sword master. So again, he's seeing that his place and his role in society and his job is to give that credit to the sword master. And I think we can all relate to that. Your boss takes the credit for the work that, you know, if you're not a manager, you have a manager, usually the manager gets all that credit for making sure things run smoothly, but there's also a lot of worker bees underneath that that go into that to make it happen. So that's the same thing that's going on here. But I think the big thing is not, is not really the sword flipping or that interplay between Governor Swan and Will Turner. I think it is Elizabeth's grand entrance, as I like to call it. A grand entrance is actually a good description for this. She comes down the stairs all grand like actually. When I first saw this scene, what it reminded me of was Gone with the Wind. And it's this moment where Scarlett O'Hara comes down the stairs. And I haven't seen the movie, to be honest, since college. And I'm not going to say how long ago that was, but it's been quite a while. And I had a film course uh, that was breaking down films and, and discussing films. And so that's where I saw it last. And this really reminded me of it. And then I started to think, wow, you know, I think that this you know, gone with the wind in this stairway scene, even though it's not kind of the same stairway, but it is kind of that grand entrance, the stairs and coming down and the lady, she's all decked out and her Mm -hmm. new dress and and all this kind of good stuff. And so that's how I see that. And I just, it just seems like how many scenes has this, has gone with the wind or the staircase scene inspired or been replicated in other movies? It's just got to be unimaginable. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's even been a lot of comedies with that. And I was trying to remember some. And, you know, I just, I really can't uh, offhand. But I know that I've seen that reference uh, before. So I probably should have did some, maybe some research on that. Or at least looked into it. Uh-huh. Now that I'm remembering that again. I'm not really sure that I saw Gone with the Wind so much. Is is really thinking of this Carol Burnett 
comedy act. And yeah, Carol Burnett is, you know, we're really getting back in time here. And so probably I'm not sure how many before your time, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely before my time. And you see it reruns. (laughs) Yeah, you can go to YouTube and watch it. But Carol Burnett does this, this act where she or this setup or uh, what do you call it? Almost like a a skit, if you will. Okay. Like kind of a Saturday Night Live skit thing, you know, sketch is really what it'd be. So a sketch. She comes down, so she's looking, she's kind of doing the Scarlett O'Hara thing. She can't find it. And Scarlett O'Hara made her dress from, say, curtains. Mm-hmm. And so did this elaborate dress out of curtains. And so Carol Burnett does the same thing and comes down the stairs. But her dress is, you know, made out of curtains, but she still has like the curtain rods that are on the <laughs> shoulders. So it's pretty funny. But And so that's what I remembered from that when I see Elizabeth coming down. I see that grand stuff, but then I also like all, automatically blink into this Carol Burnett thing where she's wearing curtain rods on her on her dress. And I'm not sure that's probably what the, the producers and directors were going for here. Uh, and the writers for the screenplay, definitely not. They don't want you to think of that. And even no. though this has some comedic opportunities, it's kind of a mix of swashbuckling adventure comedy and stuff. I don't think they were really going for that. And And I'm sure... London high fashion, even Governor Swan mentions it's, you know, the latest fashion doesn't want me associating <laughs> London's <rod>. fashion with <laughs> curtain rods and stuff for sure. But seriously, you know, she had this really excited look on her face when she was coming down the stairs. Oh, yeah. And we have and I don't think we really got to what happened, you know, she in that minute. Big old smile. On yeah. Her so face. I think she comes down and then she sees who's in the room and she gets a really big smile on her face. So I'm yeah. assuming that she sees Will. And that's why it's not her dad that she's really doing that for. But her dad is actually the first to start to comment. As we mentioned, you look absolutely dot, dot, dot. And then, yeah. the movie, and then it, that minute finishes up. And you mentioned both um, Will and her dad both kind of looked up as the... Yeah, they yeah. Ca- they both captivated the... Her, or so they were both captivated by her when she was coming down. So, yeah. yeah, some nice details. And speaking of details, too, there's still a lot of... I think the set design and the set decorators and, and everybody in that production crew did a really good job of setting some period pieces up. Yeah. Or at least making pieces look like they're from the 18th century and and creating... The, and really setting a good scene, actually. Right. And there's so there's definitely a lot of the details, and I'm not really going to go into that. We've done that some of that before. But supposedly, if you look behind Governor Swan, there's this oval kind of nature scene, landscape picture uh, kind of that's behind the him. Yeah, it? exactly. Okay. And that's a Thomas Kincaid painting, at least supposedly from what I've seen online, that oh, maybe wow. that that's a Thomas Kincaid painting, which is which would make sense because actually Thomas Kincaid does do a lot, or before he died, did a lot of mm-hmm. Disney prints and, and artwork. So oh, he yeah. was affiliated yeah. with, with Disney in, in creating that. And he actually did do a Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl scene in 2014, or at least that's when it was published was 2014. And so this particular painting really reminds me of a favorite artist of mine as a kid who was Bev Doolittle. And she focused on, at least in her early days, uh, and then I think she changed out, but she focused on, say, Native American and landscape scenes. And she would hide objects in her work. So she was kind of like the forefront of these hidden objects, paintings, or at least prints and pictures that we see now. But she was, so that was kind of her, her shtick, if you want to call it that. I don't know if we should say that for an artist, but she had, she would hide faces or or different elements within paintings. And so as my parents would sometimes visit galleries or we'd Mm -hmm. go look at paintings and stuff like that, then I was always good to be able to see like they had some Bev Doolittles there because then I could sit there and I was more interested in trying to find the hidden objects in her paintings. So 
like her and why I was going there is that in this particular Thomas Kincaid Curse of the Black Pearl painting is he hid five skulls within his painting. And so that's why it reminded me of Bev Doolittle. Oh, yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe that's a reference to finding buried treasure, pirate theme, or maybe in this case, pieces of Aztec gold is why he had some of the, the skulls in there. Very cool. That's kind of interesting, interesting information. Exactly. So that, you know, in this minute, I didn't really have much other than I think we get into the nitty gritty of some things coming up, but I didn't really have too much for this particular minute. So we may be a little bit short compared to what we have been doing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't. That's about really all I had is as far as their interaction. So I don't know if you have anything. I have a couple little funny parts of the minute that I wanted to mention. Okay. One of them is actually when um, Will is trying to hide the wall sconce or the candle. He goes and he's trying to find a place to hide it before somebody walks in the room. He goes to put it in his pocket. (laughs) Like the thing's going to fit in his pocket. Do you see the size of that thing? (laughs) Is that a wall sconce in your pocket (laughs) or are you happy to see me? He's like, didn't know where to put it. And then, oh, there's an umbrella holder. But I thought that was kind of funny. He's like searching around and goes to put it in his pocket. It's a huge little, you know, huge candlestick that he's trying to shove in his pocket. <laughs> yeah, but I think in that point, as we mentioned yesterday, you're in that mode of desperation. Like, yeah. I do not want to be caught <laughs> yeah. having broke something in their house. <laughs> and especially now that we find out he's delivering a sword that was contracted. And it's like, well, now we're going to have to deduct your pay because you you broke our stuff. And plus, exactly. just the way his eyes light up and stuff when seeing Elizabeth, is we know that there's got to be some connection there. So, yeah. And he's the governor. This is all bad news if, you, <laughs> if you're there. So you definitely don't want to get caught breaking stuff and something that's noisy like that. And speaking of that, when, as soon as he, he ditches that candle, pe- candle holder, I don't even know what this thing yeah. is called. It's a piece of this wall sconce lighting. It's... You know, it didn't really look like an oil lamp. It really looked no, like it was it's more candle-like. A, kind of a candelabra attached to the yeah. wall. So that's why I call it a sconce. And maybe it's not the right term, but a piece of that. One of the pieces of this that fall off. And then the servant comes in holding this like ornate teapot or something uh-huh. like that. And he, he kind of walks by into another room. And I'm thinking, where is he going? How many other people are in this house? Because I remember looking on the Pirates of the Caribbean wiki, and not that this is the gold standard for stuff, but it definitely seems like it maybe is, is is that there's only Governor Swan and Elizabeth living in the mansion, except maybe the two maids and a butler that we've seen. Uh Uh-huh. So Governor's there. We know that they're going to be having to go, they're going some, you know, they're going to be going somewhere. Yeah. Elizabeth is upstairs. So is where is he going with this tea tray? Unless unless Governor has already had tea and he's picking it up and moving it, but it looked like he was actually set and prepared to do something to go serve it to somebody. Yeah. So who yeah. is this that he's giving this to? And it wasn't like he was going upstairs. He crossed the. That's room what I'm saying. Yeah. To go behind where Governor's um, standing. So the, yeah, I don't know. That was just one of the things I was like, "What, what <laughs> is this?" It's like. <laughs> Maybe they need, like, we need to have somebody in the background come, you know, or at least some background activity to to create the tension that, oh my God, Will almost got caught, but he slyly didn't. And so maybe that's where it is, or he's cleaning up, or maybe there's some other visitors that are hidden in the room where there's guests of of the state. Yeah. As in, you know, England or the UK at the time, Great Britain, that that are staying there and he's serving them. But yeah, I just thought it was like... 
oh, we unless they're thinking like, hey, the governor and, and Elizabeth are going to be leaving soon. We can finally relax and have some tea and some, <laughs> Maybe that's and, it. And some, and some crumpets. And oh, man, else. they're not gone yet. We'll just pretend. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing I know you mentioned before is you can see even in the, the staff, not so much in the in the maids. But the butler is definitely dressed to the nines oh, with yeah. his outfit. It's just his ornate. wig and his yeah. yeah. So I yeah. guess that's probably part of proper presentation. It's like your butler is wearing. Well, our butler anyways wears a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but that's just us. We you know we we actually demand him to wear a tuxedo. Yes. <laughs> and so it's just part of how we are. But. I don't think most people are like that. So that's, I guess, what it is. But now that I'm yeah. thinking of it, we should probably have our butler wear like 17th century garb. That'd be good. Yeah, the Put the knickers stuff. on him <laughs> yeah, and exactly. the tights. And... So if you're... Yeah. So because we really don't have a butler, if you're interested in being our butler for free and wearing 17th century stuff, you know, let us know at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. We might have some cool stuff for you to do. Uh, and we definitely have some dogs that can entertain you during the day because we really do not have that much stuff. And we definitely don't need to be drinking from you know, uh, silver plated teapots oh. and things like that. And you notice, speaking of the clothing, do you notice uh, Will's clothes are all monotone? You know, they're all dark drab oh, kind of colors yeah and then you look over to the governor and his clothes were brightly colored so he yeah was there's all definitely and... i think that's part of high society too or at least that it's, it's like the king and the queen you know like the royal colors and purple and stuff i think there was probably a cost associated with more expensive with the dyes and things at the mm. time to get those and so it's just more so as a sign of wealth to have those brighter clothes and things right but that's really all I got. I don't have much for this minute. I think I was more eager to move on to some of the other minutes. and I, But I anticipated that there might be some cool stuff with, with the sword flipping. But, you know, I couldn't really come up with anything other than that. Except that some of the sword facts that I tried to play off that I really knew what I was talking about. But really didn't know about swords. I have one little fact. Okay, hit us with a fact. Bruckheimer was not, this was not the first time he worked with Orlando Bloom. He actually cast him as a ranger in Black Hawk Down. Oh, yeah. Another good movie. Yeah, it was the sure. first first movie that he cast him with. And then um, Orlando went on to Lord of the Rings. I've never heard of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came on to, he was able to grab him for Pirates of the Caribbean. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think we mentioned, too, that Orlando Bloom had a connection to a couple of big franchises. And Lord of the Rings is the other one. And Yeah. But, yeah. So, Bruckheimer, known for his blowing stuff up. Yeah. Makes sense here. Or at least we think it will make sense at some point. <laughs> and on that note, we'll be back tomorrow with Minute 9 of the Curse of the Black Pearl on the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Until then, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. You can contact us at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. We just might feature your questions and comments on future episodes. And visit us online at blackpearlminute.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter for additional content and post-episode discussions.